Revelation Without Fear. I'm John Hamilton. This special podcast series takes you line by line, verse by verse, through the most mysterious book in the entire Bible. You and I are part of a very ancient battle. It's a battle that's um, fought on a galactic stage, and it is far beyond the field of human vision for us to be able to see it. A lot of times we think about the battle that we're fighting today, what I'm dealing with on a day-to-day battle. We, we have our battle. Oh, the devil's on my back. Oh, you know, Satan's up to something. We think about the struggle of today. But even our greatest life challenges that you and I have on a spiritual nature are just minor skirmishes in a war that's being fought through the ages. The war is between the forces of the true king, the ultimate authority, the creator, the alpha and the mega, the one who was and is and is to come, and the forces of the rebel, the thief, the one who can only pretend, the one who, who creates nothing but only perverts and twists God's design. Lucifer's rebellion is constantly trying to create disorder wherever God has created order. He perverts every design that God has. He calls evil good and good evil. And that's why we see so much of this. Simple things in culture are turning upside down. Ideas like, I hate to meddle, but I'm going to do it. Ideas like gender. Something so basic that God has made simple and clear, Satan is attempting to create confusion and make it appear to be complex and create a different image than the one that God has said is good, the one that God has said is beautiful. And if you say anything, then evil is called good, and good is called evil. That's just the the tactic that the enemy has always used in culture after culture throughout the world. He creates nothing. He twists and perverts God's design whether it's at home or if it's church authority, any kind of God-ordered design, you can count on Satan to continually pollute and deface. That's what he does. He hates everything God has set in order, even nature. I, I often think how much even humanity, the face of humanity, the way we look, Satan hates. He seeks to deface it. If you look at cultures that are deep in darkness and deep in paganism, those are the cultures that most deface the human form. They mar it by, by, by cutting, by whatever it is. Yeah, buddy said tattoos. I wasn't going to go there, buddy. But the, the human form, trying to change it and cover it up and make it what it isn't, you look at it and you will see the cultures with the deepest darkness do the most marring of the human form. It's not an accident. Satan hates the way you look because you're made in the image of God. Whether it's life or joy or purity or anything good, Satan will attempt to bring death and destruction and thievery. He only comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And into this great cosmic battle, there is the true authority, the true word of God, God is introduced into the midst of that, this thing he calls the church. And so you and I are warriors on this battle, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. So this week, as we begin to pick up chapter 12 in the book of Revelation, 
We're going to look at this battle prophetically through the eyes of our brother John, the prophet, the apostle. We're going to see it the way he saw it. And there's not many passages in the book of Revelation, as we've studied, that people universally agree on. We've talked about our four different major views, and there's like 400 of them, but four major ones. And almost no passage do they all agree on, but the first part of chapter 12, almost everybody agrees on. It's a miracle. You see, because chapter 12 begins with a vision not of things that will happen, but a prophetic behind the scenes of things that have already happened. And the text makes it quite obvious. In some ways, we're given some background information on eternity, background information on this struggle of, of, of Israel and the church, and you might call it a 30,000-foot view of history. And into this uh, spiritual warfare, we get a little insight. Let's pick it up at Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. <clears throat> again, forgive me if I cough here now and again. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. Now, this is the first of the seven signs of Revelation. The Greek word there is simeon, and there's signs in Revelation 12, 13, and 14. He sees a woman who represents Israel, a dragon who represents Satan, the man-child who represents Jesus, and the angel Michael, the head of the uh, angelic hosts, the offspring, if you will, representing Christ's brothers and sisters, Christians here on earth. And depending on your view, either these are the, all the Christians of history or the Christians that came out of the great tribulation, the beast who comes out of the sea, which is called the Antichrist, and the beast which comes out of the land, who is called the false prophet, who promotes the Antichrist. Now, John calls this first sign a mega simeon, a great sign, the first of the seven. And because John tells us it's a sign, we know it's symbolic, right? This is not a literal woman. This is a symbol, because John's very clear. It's a sign. So it prophetically represents a reality, not to expect a literal woman with 12 stars around her head to suddenly show up. Now, it's noted that women often represent spiritual forces in Scripture, and the book of Revelation is no exception. We've already seen uh, Jezebel associated as a religious force that seeks control and teaches lies. We saw that in, in Revelation 2. Later on, in Revelation 17, we learn about something he calls the great harlot who's associated with false religions. And then we, of course, also see the bride, the bride of Christ, which is spoken of multiple times in Scripture, and specifically in Revelation 19. We'll get there a little later on. So women are often associated with signs or, or if you will, uh, spiritual forces in the book of Revelation. John describes her as being clothed with the sun. Now, some of your Roman Catholic expositors over the years have said that this represents Mary because it shows her giving birth to Jesus. But as you read the passage, it's pretty clear that the woman represents Israel who brought forth a son, not the person, Mary, because the concept of Mary fleeing into the wilderness, as we'll read in a minute, and the earth opening her up really does not make sense. It's pretty apparent that he's speaking of the nation of Israel. 
But sometimes you'll see, and you might have seen it, some Catholic art with uh, uh, like a, a Mary with a sun behind her head and 12 stars. That's where this comes from because it's some old expositors described her that way. She's clothed with the sun, which again should easily be identified in Israel. If you all go all the way back to the vision that's described in Genesis 37, the patriarch Joseph's dream, remember he saw the sun and the moon and the sun was Jacob or Israel. Okay, there's multiple other examples that I can give you um, where you have uh, Israel associated as a woman, uh, uh, Zion, Jerusalem, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Hosea, and multiple other times. Israel is represented as a woman. In verse 5, it's very clear that the child born of Israel is Jesus. She bore a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Jesus, no question. She was pregnant. Verse 2, and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Now, I think it makes sense that the travail that she was in probably represents the travail that Israel was in at the time of Jesus' birth. Back during the production a few weeks ago, if you were here, I talked about it in the narration, how the time that Jesus came into the earth was a very turbulent time. It was not a peaceful time. It was not a happy time for Israel. It was a miserable time. They were under the, 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 the iron fist of Rome. Almost every Israeli citizen was not a citizen of Rome, and that meant they were slaves. It was a very difficult time. So it was out of travail that Jesus was born in the time of the Roman occupation. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. He, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Anybody want to guess who the red dragon is? It's a tough one, right? Yeah, well, um, in fact, specifically, he is named in the text later as the devil by John. Again, we're reminded this is a sign. Satan is not literally a fiery red dragon, um, but the dragon definitely represents his nature and his character, as well as other aspects of his appearance and his actions. Seven heads, seven crowns on his heads. This has significance, no doubt, and a lot of speculation about it. Horns speak of a number of things, kingdoms, spiritual or natural kingdoms, authority. Horns in Scripture always refer to power and authority, always. You see it multiple times in other prophetic passages. It simply refers to authority or power, a corrupt authority in this case, military power, armies, nations. Many modern expositors and Bible teachers have uh, widely taught that these uh, Ten horns speak of a coming alliance with a revived Roman Empire um, because the empire was, of course, um, in power at the time of Christ's birth. That, of course, is speculation. The original ten kingdoms of the Roman Empire, which were represented by the, the little horn of Daniel, which uh, describes Antiochus, the type of the Antichrist, a lot of similarities here. And so maybe you might be familiar with that. There's been a lot of teaching of that over the years. We don't really know that. It looked that way a whole lot when people talked about well, it was going to be the European common market until the European common market disappeared, right? And uh, so uh, it, it doesn't quite look as apparent. That's why I said to you, and I don't mean to come across as a little bit um, caustic when I say this, but every few years, modern futurists have to change their interpretations of this because the global situation changes. And somebody writes a book and says this is how it looks. And I have I've stated, and I kind of stand by it, that 
Sometimes it's a little arrogant for us to always interpret the book of Revelation in light of what we see right now. Because every generation has been able to apply it to itself. And you know what? It's okay. The Word of God is for us now. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a future application, that all of this will not become very evident at one point. And when it's time, people are going to go, oh, you know what this is? It's right here in the book. I promise you that. His tail swept a third of the stars of heaven. Many people believe, and I agree, that this is a prophetically representative of the third of the angelic host who fell during Lucifer's rebellion. So some of what we're seeing here isn't just a future event. Although some people say, well, this is something that's happening during the Great Tribulation. Yes, but it's also symbolic of something that happened in the past where a third of the angels fell with Satan and became the, 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 the demons, the, 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 uh, the disembodied uh, powers that he deals with, Lucifer's rebellion, his angels, demons, powers, and principalities. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. This little verse is not to be overlooked because it really reveals an interesting principle. The enemy seeks to devour God's purposes in their infancy. Now, he's done it historically. Of course, consider what happened at the time of Jesus, how Herod attempted to kill the children. But also consider what happened in another great deliverer's life, Moses. When Moses was born, what did Pharaoh do? He wiped out a whole generation of Israelis, children of Israel, because he wanted to stop the deliverance. Satan has had, a, and some have often said, <coughs> I think there's maybe some prophetic significance to it, that one of the reasons why abortion is so tragic in America is could the enemy be attempting to take away the great move of God in its infancy? How many evangelists and prophets and pastors and teachers have we lost? It's something to consider. But it is very clear in this situation that Satan was attempting to devour a child, and it was very clearly represented by Herod's attempts to kill Jesus as a child. She gave, her birth, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Clearly, we're talking about Jesus, the Messiah, who rules the world with a rod of iron. As a Psalm 2 prophesied, he said to me, you are my son, today I become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your procession, and you will rule with a rod of iron or an iron scepter. Later in Revelation 19, if there was any question as to whether this is Jesus, he's described this way, he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, his name is the word of God, the armies of heaven are following him, riding on a white horse, dressed in fine linen, clean and white. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes the nations. John has already described in the first chapter Jesus with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and in on his robe and on his thigh there is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friends, we're talking about Jesus here. So there's no question as to the identity of this child who's being born. Then the passage says this, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. You see, when Jesus completed the work that he was sent here to accomplish, which remarkably enough he did in short 33 years, he was caught up to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God making intercession for you and me. 
And now the church age has begun. Do you see how he's giving us this overview of history? In this little slice here in Revelation 12, it's just like an overview of everything that's happened and will happen. So now, as he's caught up, the church age begins. And then verse 6 says this curiously, the woman, who of course is Israel, fled into the desert to find a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now, up till now, remarkably, most all of your major expositors agree that we're talking about the past. All of a sudden, at this moment, everybody goes in different directions. But we'll do our best. Um, what we do see is that persecuted by the dragon, this woman who is protected by God, goes into a place prepared for 1,260 days. Boom. Once again, there's that number again. We talked about it the last couple of weeks. We've seen it multiple times. Now, modern Bible prophecy teachers typically see this as the nation of Israel or possibly a persecuted remnant of Christians fleeing a literal antichrist during the Great Tribulation, possibly going to some remote location and surviving. Could very well be. And for about, goodness, 50 or 60 years now, a lot of people have proposed locations. Where is this place in the wilderness that they're going to flee to? And a few years ago, some began to popularly teach that the place in the wilderness is the rock city of Petra. How many of you have ever seen that? If it looks familiar to you, it's because it was the Indiana Jones set. But it's actually a real place. I've been there. How many of you have been there? Anybody else been there? How many you have been there, right? Never been to Petra. Um, I went there and when did I go there? 1981, I think it was. Long, long time ago. Fascinating, fascinating place. Uh, you, you travel through this. We traveled on back of donkeys through this almost like very narrow canyon to get there. Um, but when people began to teach that this is the place, that in the wilderness, that Israel is going to flee under the Antichrist, this place exploded in popularity as a tourist location. So a lot of tourists, I mean, it, Jordanian tourism loved it because a lot of people, if they're, when they're making their trips to the Holy Land, they want to make a trip to this place. And uh, in fact, a number of years ago, reportedly some Christian businessmen stocked the area with food and evangelistic tracts in Hebrew. <laughs> because Israel was going to fly there at some point in the Great Tribulation. Again, I don't mean to be caustic or funny, but it's kind of, I'm kind of like, well, I hope the Antichrist doesn't read these Bible prophecies, because if so, the secret's blown. He's going to know where they're hiding. But the idea of a physical, literal place that God hides this remnant is, is one that may very well be. We don't really know. But other people, quite a few teach, that what we're seeing here is an overview of history continuing. The woman, being Israel, flees into the wilderness. Now, a lot of people think that's the diaspora, the spreading out of Israel. And of course, in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, what happened to the Jewish people? They spread out into all the world, didn't they? And they spread out until 1948, when miraculously, and there's no way you can't call this a sign from heaven, that in 1948, a remnant returned to the land of their birth speaking Hebrew. Now, I don't know about you, but my ancestors came here, and within a generation, none of them sounded like they where they came from. In almost every other culture, you take people and you put them in another land, and they talk like that, and they absorb into that culture. But remarkably, amazingly, the Jewish people who were dispersed from that nation have maintained their beliefs, have maintained the concept of the Sabbath, 
It's been said, more than the Jews have kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath has kept the Jews. Because from generation to generation to generation to generations, fathers have passed on to sons the language, the culture, the observation of the Sabbath, these sorts of things. It is no other people in history have done this. But the Jewish people did and returned to a nation in 1948. So it is an incredible prophetic sign. You know, you just, you just have to be blind, sorry, not to see that. But 1,260 days, I don't know. It's not the number. So what does it mean? I don't know. I mean, I'm not that smart. Um, just working on it here. But one thing is clear, and this is what I walk away with. God made preparation. See, he prepared a place, and he has prepared a place. He prepares a place for the church. He has prepared a place for Israel in the midst of whatever, in the midst of changes, in the midst of world turmoil, in the midst of kings rising and falling and civilizations rising and falling. God has done something that no man could have done. Funny, the word he says, he is, I've got that scripture up there. I put it in the notes because... It's the same word for prepared when it said the place that he'd prepared is the same word that Jesus used when he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I've told you, I've gone to prepare a place for you. Same Greek word used here. God has a plan, and he's preparing, and he's working it out. Verse 7, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, once again, there are different views on this. Some historicists have an interesting take on this one. Worth sharing. There was Michael the archangel fighting with the dragon. They believe this is related to the story of a guy named Julian the apostate. I don't know if, how many of you know who that is. Julian was the son of Constantine the Great's half-brother, and he became the Roman emperor immediately after Constantine. Now, keep in mind, and I've shared on this in the past, Constantine was a pivotal moment in church history. When he became the first Christian emperor of Rome, everything changed. The persecutions ended. The Bishops and early leaders of the church became the governors and the presidents and the leaders and the judges in the culture. It was in some ways the greatest thing, in many ways the worst thing that ever happened to the church. Church history pivoted when Constantine became the emperor. But in that moment, after Constantine died, his successor became Julian. Julian was not a believer. And Julian did everything he could for a brief few years to return the Roman Empire to the worship of the old gods. And he tried to, to bring it about, but the die had been cast. And um, there's a little bit of uh, differences in the story as to whether Julian was wounded in battle or whether actually there might have been a Christian assassin who went in and took him out. I don't really know for sure. But he was wounded, and he was sick, and he was dying. And he had been hailing curses against the Christian God, but his recorded last words are these. You have won at last, Galilean. Pretty powerful. Anyway, he was the last pagan emperor to ever sit on the throne of Rome. And so some of your historicists believe that that uh, battle is that. I kind of think that that's 
not exactly qualifies as war in heaven, although it's a great story and a great testimony. Um, most modern prophecy teachers, your Lindsay's and LaHaye's and this kind of stuff, who really have set the stage for a lot of what is uh, uh, widely accepted in evangelical churches in America today, they see this as a war in heaven as something that's happening during the Great Tribulation, maybe in the middle of the Great Tribulation. Others look back at this and say, hey, this is clearly the fall of Satan. And you know what? There's probably both truths, as we've discussed. But one thing I think is pretty clear. First, we have a battle between the armies of God and those who fell with Satan. That's a fact. The other thing I see that I absolutely can say, we know for sure of this passage. What happens in heaven is affecting what's happening on earth. The battle in the heavenlies directly affects. In other words, people here on earth think we're running the show. It's all about what we're doing. We're planning, we're scheming, we're working. But what's really going on is what's happening in the heavenly realms is being reflected in the natural in the earth. That is a very powerful principle that we can all learn because I assure you that's how it happens all the time. And the third thing that I think is powerful to see is that Satan is cast down. Satan is cast down. He was cast down from heaven then. He will be ultimately cast down in the end, and he is cast down now by the authority of the church. That was a good place to really shout a little bit. But it's important to remember. Come on, Rich, let's get it up going on. Baby. A little shouting, come on. Verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before God day and night, has been hurled down. Now, this heavenly proclamation here again is something that you and I can really learn from. I love chapter 12 of Revelation for this reason. I want you to notice that Satan, the great dragon, is seen here in his favorite role, the accuser of the brothers. That is who he is. Never forget that his nature is to be the accuser of brothers and sisters in Christ. Satan puts himself into that before the throne of God. You know, it's interesting. The book of Job paints this picture of the day that the Ben Elohim, uh, the sons of God, the created beings that were subservient to God, the angels, the spirits, the demons, principalities, everything, all the created things that were subservient to God appeared before the Lord. And, and some of your versions don't do it right. It says all of the angels came. That's not what it says. In the, in the Hebrew, it says the ben Elohim, which is a much bigger word. It means the sons of God, all of those things that are subservient to him. And it said, and Satan was there too, because all of them were. And he begins to accuse Job. And the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? And of course, what does he say? Ah, oh, yeah, you, you know why he serves you. You have protected him. What's he doing? Accusing. Accusing, accusing. Well, here we see that Satan does it all the time. That wasn't a one-time gig. That's what he does. He is constantly accusing before the throne of God. It's like a stream of his accusations going up before the throne. Fortunately, there is another stream that goes up before the throne day and night. You know what it is? It's called intercession. 
Scripture says that we have a great high priest who's passed into the heavens, who sits at the right hand of God. It says that he's seated at the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession for you and me. Now, a lot of people have a funny idea about intercession. They think intercession's praying. They think he's there praying for us. Oh, Lord, please don't let him mess up. That's not what Jesus is doing when he's interceding. The idea of intercession is really probably in earth best exemplified as a lawyer before a judge's bench. You see, I'd be representing Buddy, and I'd say, Your Honor, my client is not nearly as bad a traffic offender as some have said. I'm here to say he's a pretty good guy. Well, you know what, what Jesus is doing is he's standing before the throne of heaven, and he says, this is my son, buddy. He's washed in my blood. He's the one that I gave my life for. And so the Lord's like bringing him right into the throne room, okay, because he's representing us, and that's why we come boldly into the throne of grace, right? So, so you've got these two streams. You've got accusation. All the lies of the enemy, you're a failure. You're no good. You've blown it. You've blown it again. You're so full of sin. How can you call yourself a person of God? That's the voice of the accuser. And then we have the voice of Jesus who's speaking the truth, but she's washed in my blood. She's cleansed. She's holy and righteous. He stands before you clean because of my blood. You see this, see this dynamic? I think it's important that we get it because this is a living dynamic that's going on right now. Right now. So these two forces are converging before the throne room of God. You know, some might say this. If Satan is cast out of heaven, how in the world does he have access to the throne room? And the best answer I've ever heard might shock you just a little bit. I sometimes think that, that, that Satan uses saints of God who do have access to the throne to give him access because they lend their lips to accusation. See, you and I get a decision to make every day. Am I going to lend my lips to accusation or am I going to lend my lips to intercession? If he's enthroned, in the church, in the praises of his people, and among the church today, where do you think this point on earth will converge the most? Wherever God's people are. You're going to find struggles with criticism and accusation. You'll also find intercession. I know this sounds like I'm on a rabbit trail tonight, but I really want you to see it because this is what's really being revealed in the Word. And this is where we understand many of these things. So if God's throne is here in the church on earth, these activities are going to be real issues. There's always going to be a major dragon positioned against the move of God, and we have to stay vigilant to cast it down. Accusation and criticism are the tools that the enemy uses. But I want you to look at what happens when accusation is cast down. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ, for the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before God day and night, has been hurled down. Something happens 
when the enemy's accusations are cast down, they are not, they're, they're, they're ceased, okay? It's no longer there. They're hurled down. First of all, there's salvation that comes. People get saved in an atmosphere of love and acceptance. They don't get saved because they feel judged. They get saved because they feel God's forgiveness. Are you hearing me? It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. When grace has been revealed to them and faith comes alive in their heart, salvation comes. Not by shame, but by freedom from shame. Power comes according to this. Miracle working power is released in an atmosphere where there's not criticism and accusation. When we trade in the right to defend ourselves, when we stop picking up the carnal weapons of throwing accusation back at our accusers and instead hold to the realm of the supernatural, there is healing release, there's deliverance release. When we refuse accusation, God's spirit moves freely in an atmosphere. That's why he says in Ephesians, he talks about the fact that he said, you know, put away all bitterness and malice and evil speaking. And the next sentence he says, you know, don't quench the Holy Spirit for which you were sealed. How do we quench the Holy Spirit? It's by our bitterness. It's by our anger. It's by our malice. It's by our accusations. We're allowing Satan to use us because we're venting and giving voice to those things. Listen, this is... You want to talk about creating an atmosphere where the Holy Spirit can move, whether it's in your home, whether it's in your church, whether it's in a small group, get rid of accusation. The kingdom of our God comes according to that passage. The kingdom of our God is established when we refuse to allow the accuser to use us. You know, John the Baptist was one of the first to proclaim the kingdom of God, right? And do you remember what he said to the soldiers, told him to do? He said this, don't accuse people falsely. And the soldier said, what should we do? He said two things to the soldiers. Be content with your pay and don't accuse people falsely. Because there's a, something that happens when accusation is present. There's a spiritual dynamic. And when accusation ceases, there is a foundation for the kingdom. Now, there's also a coming moment when the accusation ceases forever and for good, when he is cast down. But the passage also speaks to us here and now, and there's a powerful principle to releasing the blessing of God in your life. Isaiah 58 said it this way. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in darkness and your night will be like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He'll satisfy your needs like a in a sun-scorched land, doesn't matter what's going on, if the economy is bad, if the land is sun-scorched, he's going to satisfy your needs. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring of water that never fails. My point in all of this is when those blessings are released according to Isaiah, it is when the pointing finger stops. Jesus said something remarkable. He said, judge not and you will not be judged. For with this judge measure, you judge others, it'll be judged back to you. See, when you judge, when you criticize, when you accuse, you release spiritual forces to bring that measure right back at you. You feel the condemnation in your own heart. You feel judged. Even if the Lord's saying, look, I'm not judging you. I've, I've freed you. We feel that judgment, don't we? All right. <clears throat> I've said enough on this one. 
But I want you to know, when we criticize and accuse, we release the identical thing into our own lives. If you want to hear more on this subject, two weeks ago at 9 a.m. class, I did it on, it's online. Um, I talk about criticism, and I, and I go a little bit more in detail on this, but it's a powerful spiritual force. But notice now, in verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Victory over the accuser, over Satan in his most common form, came in three ways. First of all, the blood of the Lamb, the finished work of what Jesus Christ has done, our identification with the fact that he has washed us, he has made us clean, our understanding that the blood of the Lamb is the only means by which we stand. The second thing that caused them to overcome was the word of their testimony, how they lived and how they confessed their lives, speaking it, living it, declaring it. The third thing, and this is the one people don't talk about much, he said, and they loved not their lives so much as to shrink from death. Look, if we try to just, if we try to fix our lives and we totally are focused on our lives and making our lives better, you know what? We're going to miss something because there is a power not only in, it's not just martyrdom. As Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Wherever there has been persecution, the church has grown. Can't be stopped. Can't be stopped. But the principle isn't that, oh, people are dying, so now, you know, God can bless it. It's the heart attitude of the followers of God. It's those who say, look, my life doesn't matter. The gospel is all that matters. I'm not loving my life as to try to evade dying or inconvenience or pain. I'm not spending my time on my own agenda. I'm here for one purpose. And it is that heart that causes the church to grow. Making sense? It's not just people dying. It's the heart that says, I don't care if you kill me. I'm here for Jesus. That, loving not their lives as to shrink from death, that is what blesses. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. In the heavenlies, there's rejoicing because the deed is done and Satan's influence is ended, but on earth there is woe and sorrow because he's going to take out as many as he can. As I said, he hates man. He hates the image of man. When the dragon saw he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the wings of an eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken of, for, care of for a time, times, and half a time. There again, that three and a half years or 1,260 days out of the serpent's reach. He pursued the woman who gave birth to the male child. Who are we talking about here again? Israel. Now, a lot of modern expositors will go into a lot of detail talking about the Antichrist someday breaking a covenant that he makes with Israel and then making war on the state of Israel. That's very plausible. It could be. But a scenario for every generation since Christ is true of this. There is much wrath that has been released against Israel as a people because they brought the world's Savior to us. Satan hates the seed of Abraham. It was through Abraham's seed that the great blessing and forgiveness of sin was released into the world, right? Why does Satan hate the Jewish people? Why have they been oppressed throughout all the ages? It's not just what the Antichrist is going to do in the last 
two, uh, seven years of history. It's what's happened in 2,000 years of, of being spread out through the world. Consider Hitler, who was clearly a type of the Antichrist, functioning in the Antichrist spirit. Wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. Consider the Inquisitions led by those who claimed to be Christians but were more functioning in a murderous rage and a spirit of the Antichrist than they were the spirit of Christ. Why? Because Israel introduced faith to the earth. Israel brought forth a Messiah and a Redeemer. Israel brought the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. Now, in the end, the prophecies of Scripture clearly show us that an intact Jewish people will exist and welcome him when he returns in his glory. So, I have every reason to believe that even as in the last 2,000 years God has protected the Jewish people, he will continue to do so in some way, shape, form, or fashion. The woman is given two wings of an eagle. She can fly into the wilderness. Of course, eagle's wings being a symbol of, of deliverance or the exodus. I've heard some say, is this a great military transport that it causes them to escape? Who knows? We don't know. It's, that's, uh, that's, again, kind of speculation. What is evident and what we can all agree on is this. God will provide a divinely orchestrated plan to deliver Israel. She will be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time. Here again, some people believe this is a symbol of Dan, what is called Daniel's 70th week. Um, then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and cause her to be swept away in the torrent. Now, a lot of people believe this, uh, your, your preterists believe this speaks of the, what happened in AD 70 and the destruction of the nation of Israel. Could be, you know, when Jesus said, you know, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, you know, don't, you know, flee, which, of course, the Christians had fleed. Pray that it won't be on the winter or in the Sabbath. Um, but also others believe that this is a, has a future meaning for the people of Israel. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed forth out of its mouth. Here, we can see that in some way, shape, or form, the earth protects the woman. We don't know exactly what that means. But you know what? You can say this. Even if there's a future meaning for the Antichrist and his armies against a literal nation of Israel, there's a principle at work. You know, God has used heathens and he's used other nations to protect his people at times and seasons, even those with bad motives. I mean, during the Middle Ages, because the, you know, it's so funny, you see this over and over and over, how uh, warring kingdoms and even the Crusaders, they had to get financing from Jews to accomplish some of the Crusades. And even though many Jews were killed in the whole process and they were treated horribly in the process, God has used the blessing and the success of the Jewish people in many cases to protect them and keep them. Think about modern times. Hitler had his ultimate solution, didn't he? He had his plan. He was going to wipe them out. But nations rose up and responded to the Nazi aggression. They, they, by the way, they did it a little too late. A lot of them died. But ultimately, they were preserved, didn't they? There was, there was a remnant. There were people who were preserved. I think of modern times, and we don't have time to discuss it tonight, how, how America has been used of the Lord to protect Israel. I realize this is controversial for some. People don't like to talk about this. Is certainly, even in the modern church today, those who subscribe to replacement theology believe that the modern state of Israel has no place in Bible prophecy. <clears throat> I have a hard time believing that because any way you look at it, 
the existence of that state is a miracle. It is a miracle. And I think of how God used people like, oh, man, Gentiles, people of, like Ward Wingate. Some of you don't know who that was, but God just had the right British soldier in the right place at the right time to teach a bunch of frightened Jewish men who were surrounded by people who wanted to kill them. He taught them guerrilla tactics. He taught them how to fight back. He taught them how to do surveillance. It's one of the reasons why there is a Jewish nation today. The right people were in the right place at the right time, supernaturally, even if they were there for just short seasons. God has always done this. If you look through the hand of history, you'll see it over and over and over again. should give us as followers of Jesus Christ incredible confidence in what it means to have a covenant with God because he's faithful. Yes, the earth has opened her mouth many times to help the woman. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Some say this refers to Jesus turning his, excuse me, to Satan turning his attention to the other side of the family, to Christians. And this is uh, Gentiles who come to faith during the Great Tribulation, <coughs> going through tremendous, tremendous um, persecution as targets of the Antichrist rage. Could be. But one thing I know. Time is short, and we have just seen a vision of amazing, amazing warfare throughout history, past, present, and future. You and I are part of that battle. Because we live in a battle, sometimes it's tiring. Sometimes it's exhausting. And normally, we can't even see the part we play. We think, (laughs) whenever we begin to think that we have obtained an important place where we have a commanding perspective of the the theater of war, (laughs) we we fool ourselves. We're only viewing a small part of the battlefield at best. And you and I are part of a a line of soldiers that stretches from the cross to the horizon. And every day you get up and you find weapons in your hand, you carry the weapons that a soldier carried before. Every generation before has carried this gospel and it handed it down to the next generation. The other night we were gathered around my table. All of my children made it home for Christmas, even, albeit for just a few days, even my kids from China. Who were, but all of them, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful to the Lord that my kids are serving him and serving him in radical ways. And one of the prayers that was at the table by one of my children who serves in a kind of a dangerous part of the world said, you know, Lord, it, we're praying. And the prayer was, Lord, it's only one thing that matters. Is just taking this gospel to the ends of the earth until everybody hears and everybody hasn't heard yet. And you and I are part of that. We carry those same weapons. We carry that same call. And you and I are engaged in that same battle today. But we can take courage that we know that whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So victory today isn't defined by whether or not you feel the battle or you're having a good day or a bad day. Victory is defined by our faith, what we believe, standing. No matter what you see, no matter what you feel, when it's the good day, when it's the bad day, when you feel like you're winning or when you feel like you're losing, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you are in faith believing for that ultimate victory, believing it whether you see it or whether you do not. 
Because this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And victory occurs not with what you see with you, your eyes, but what you apprehend in your heart. Because the battle's unseen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Revelation Without Fear. If you'd like any more information about any of my other teachings, you can find them at johnhamilton.com.